Chapter 3 Off the Beaten Track Wat Nong Pa Pong Inspiring are the forests in which worldlings find no pleasure. There the passionless will rejoice, for they seek no sensual pleasures. Dhammapada verse 99 Part 1 Settlers Pong Forest The monastery's official title is Wat Nong Ba Pong, but on all but the most formal occasions, it is referred to as Wat Ba Pong. Wat means monastery. Nong is a pool of water. Ba is a forest. And Pong is an indigenous wild grass. It was on the 8th of March, 1954, that Lumpur Cha and his disciples made their way along the cart track running westwards from Ban Go on the last leg of their journey to Pong Forest. Afternoon temperatures at that time of year regularly exceed 35 degrees, but the oppressive heat would have cooled slightly as they approach the dense forest and the path become increasingly stippled and striped by the shade. In the late afternoon, as the gorged red sun was starting its descent ahead of them, the monks strung up their glots at the edge of the forest amid the hum of mosquitoes and the deafening shrill of cicadas. Pong Forest held strong associations for Luang Po. An abiding memory of his childhood was of his father walking there one morning with some friends to offer arms to the great Luang Pu Sao, who was camped out in the forest practicing meditation. That evening, the young Cha had listened with fascination to his father's account of their expedition. It was the first time he had heard about wandering monks living austere lives in the jungle. He always remembered how impressed his father had been that Lumpu Sao ate all his food from his arms bowl rather than from plates as the village monks did. And he also recalled his father's slight puzzlement at Lumpu Sao's teaching style. It wasn't like a proper sermon at all, he had said. It was just like normal talking. Many years later, Luang Po's recall of the day was still strong. When I set off and started practicing, the memory of my father's account was constantly with me. Whenever I came back home to visit, my mind would always turn to this forest. Ajandi from Pibun and Ajahn Put once passed through here, and the villagers invited them to stay. Ajahn Put still speaks of it to this day. Ajahn Di said, This isn't our place. We can't stay. It won't be long now, and the owner will arrive. The following morning, after finishing their daily meal, the group of monks entered the thickly tangled forest for the first time. Villagers from Banco moved in front of them, expertly hacking away through the stubborn vines and luxurious undergrowth with their machetes. Eventually, at the cool heart of the forest, they halted. No photographs were taken of this auspicious occasion. It's unlikely that anyone present that day had ever seen a camera, much less used one. But imagination may supply a picture. The wiry villagers... Sweat running down the protective spells tattooed on their chests, squatting in a circle and rolling cigarettes. 
with long paw at the foot of an ancient and imposing mango tree, the monks sit some distance apart, drinking water from their bamboo flasks and tranquility from the air around them. A group of women had been following in the monks' wake. They soon joined their menfolk in methodically removing all the vines, stumps and thorns in the neighborhood of the old mango tree. Clearing land was work at which the villagers were adept, and a central open area soon started to take shape amongst the larger shade-bearing trees, creating a neat, stately, almost park-like atmosphere in the middle of the thick and matted jungle that surrounded them. At the foot of some of the larger trees beyond the edge of this area, small squares of land were cleared for the monks to set up their clots. The monks themselves, forbidden by the vinea to dig the earth or destroy plant life, helped by dragging the cut branches into the forest and sweeping the cleared areas. There was a break at midday for the villagers to eat their lunch. Sticky rice and fermented fish brought from home and fresh forest leaves gathered along the way. Then, with the sun overhead, filtering down between the large patches of shade in bright, hot pools, it was back to the steady rhythm of the work. By late afternoon, a rudimentary path had been cut to the edge of the forest. After taking their leave of Longpore, the lay people made their way along this new path for the first time, hurrying a little in order to reach their homes before dark. In the heart of the forest, as darkness set in, the monks in their glots sat in meditation. Early one morning, a few days later, a group of volunteers from Ban Go and Ban Klang arrived to build huts for the monks and expand the open area. They brought with them sections of thin yakha thatch for the roofs and cut the main posts and beams from the trees around them. The men deftly split bamboo into long strips to weave into floors while the women attached large, dry chut leaves to bamboo frames for the walls. Four huts were completed by the evening. Simple dwellings, but sufficient for the monks' needs. The flimsiness of these shelters could not conceal their significance. The creation, in the space of a day, had transformed the monks' presence in the forest from that of respectful guests of its peace and shade, into settlers. Pong Forest, the monks' new home, possessed a certain notoriety amongst local people. In former days, the now dry freshwater pool towards its northern end had attracted many wild animals, including tigers and elephants. Adding to the forest's daunting reputation was the widespread belief that a harsh and vengeful guardian spirit had vowed to protect it from human intrusions. Luang Po, who was generally very forthright in his criticism of baseless superstition, did not counter this belief. On the contrary, he frequently referred to the spirit by name, Po Dang. He once explained to some guests, When I first came to stay here, it was a hard place to live. There were none of these buildings you see now, nothing but forest. It goes without saying that there were no roads, and coming in and out was very difficult. The local farmers lived a long way away. 
they didn't dare to come into the forest because the guardian spirit here was so fierce. This spirit was once an elephant herder who would often pass through the forest on his expeditions to capture elephants and would water them at the pond on the way back. In the end, he settled down here to look after the forest and it's thanks to him that by the time I came to live here, there was still some of it left. Otherwise, it would probably all have been cut down long ago. A number of years ago, some villagers from Banbok and Banpung did clear a patch of land and plant some rice and vegetables, but all of them came to an unfortunate end. People who have come in and cut down trees have tended to die from mysterious causes. Wild potatoes grow abundantly in the forest, but nobody's dared to touch them. It was only after I'd come to live here that people started to farm more closely to the forest edge. Strange Visions The full moon day of March marked the first observance day since the monks' arrival in the forest. About a dozen lay people came to spend the day and night chanting and meditating with the monks. At seven o'clock, the evening chanting completed and the last light of the day fading away, Lung Po began to expound the Dhamma, his voice energetic and compelling. As the words flowed more and more surely, his form was illuminated by the rays of the newly risen moon. Then, quite without warning, arrested in full spate, Lung Po suddenly fell silent. Many of his listeners found their eyes jerking open in surprise, to be greeted with the view of their teacher sitting in the moonlight, as still and composed as a Buddha image. After a few moments, he spoke to them. Everyone, just sit calmly. If anything strange occurs, there's no need to be alarmed. And then, without further explanation, he resumed his discourse. A few minutes later, a bright light like a comet appeared in the sky to the northwest. Passing over their heads, it then dropped earthwards to the southeast of the small cleared area in which they sat, bathing the whole forest grove in a dazzling light. Despite the forewarning, monks and lay people were profoundly thrilled at what they saw as an auspicious portent for the new monastery. Luang Po, however, paid no attention to the light whatsoever and carried on with his Dhamma talk as if nothing had happened. Gradually, the spell and power of his words reasserted their hold over his audience. Luang Po was never to refer to this matter again. Nevertheless, the following morning when he led a small group of lay people to mark the limits of the new monastery with stakes, it did not pass unnoticed that the boundaries he chose, enclosing an area of some 150 rai or 60 acres, were governed by the points at which the strange light had risen and fallen. It was not the end of mysterious lights. Menoi, one of the villagers who had spent the observance day nights practicing in the monastery and had been present on the first occasion, relates. In those days, it wasn't as easy to get to the monastery as it is today. 
Those of us from Bangkok who wanted to go and listen to the Dhamma on Observance Day nights would follow a narrow track which passed through some scrubby forest. Some sections of this track were thickly overgrown with car grass. One night, there was quite a big group of us, including Poor Put, but we still managed to get lost out by Python Pond. Just as we were standing there, discussing which way to go, we saw a bright light hovering over the tips of the large mango tree, and we headed into the forest towards it. The undergrowth was thick with grass and tangled vines, but we kept on struggling through it with the light as our goal. We assumed that a big hurricane lamp had been suspended in one of the trees. When we thought of how kind Lung Po was to put up a light to guide us, all our weariness disappeared. Finally, when we reached the clearing where the monks live, there was no light at all. We were amazed. Early Austerity It would be inaccurate to describe the establishment of Wat Pong as signalling the birth of the forest tradition in Ubon. It's impossible to tell how many hermitages have quietly flourished and declined in the last few hundred years, or how many flimsy kutis have been swallowed by the forest. Some fifteen years earlier, Lung Bu Sao had returned to Ubon, determined to spend the last years of his life establishing the forest tradition in his native province, and a few small monastic communities had resulted from his efforts. Nevertheless, it's clear that Lung Po Cha settling in Pong Forest was a most significant development. Wat Ba Pong was to become a training centre for forest monks, who, within thirty years, would establish over sixty branch monasteries throughout the province, and many more in adjoining provinces of South and Southeast Isan. Wat Ba Pong was established without capital and with no plan of development. Luang Po's belief was that if the Sangha practiced sincerely, the material evolution of the monastery would gradually take care of itself, because lay Buddhists, inspired by the monks' dedication, would offer the necessary funds of their own volition. In the long term, buildings would be needed, but they were not an urgent or overriding concern. The important thing was the monks' practice. The Vinaya forbids monks from any kind of fundraising effort. They are taught to be content with whatever is offered out of faith, however much or however little, whether of good quality or poor. Luang Po followed these injunctions to the letter. If it was going to take ten or twenty years to build a proper Dhamma hall, then so be it. He was certainly not going to sell his integrity for bags of cement. Every morning the monks went on alms round, ate their one daily meal, and then spent the rest of the day at their practice. Faithful villagers provided the things they needed. Everything else they simply did without. The arrival of Luang Po and his monks was a talking point in local communities for a few days. But the villagers had their work to do, and when the novelty of the forest monks had worn off, so did much of the interest in them. 
The majority of the villagers thought it was a good thing in general to have a forest monastery nearby, and they appreciated the opportunity to put food in the monks' bowls in the morning. But their lives continued unchanged. The cultural identity and the opportunities for making merit provided by the village monasteries were as much as most people expected or sought from religion. Although a few people maligned the forest monks as misguided zealots, a certain number of villagers were deeply inspired by them, becoming regular supporters of the new Wat and disciples of Luang Po. For a number of years, the physical conditions in which Luang Po and his disciples lived were very austere. The gap between their standard of living and that of the people in the villages surrounding the monastery was not, however, a large one. Find in the morning, eat in the evening, is a Thai idiom that well expresses the poverty of most inhabitants of rural Ubon in the mid-1950s. If the monks had little to eat with their daily ball of sticky rice and patched their robes until they fell apart, the local villagers were hardly better off. Cash or disposable income was still in short supply. What little money people did have was kept aside for times of illness. If they had a few spare coins for merit-making, their first obligation was to support their local village monastery. For these reasons, funds for the material development of Wat Bapong were slow to appear. It was not considered a problem. There was no standard length of time laid down for building a monastery. If money was offered, some construction work could take place. If not, it didn't. Requisites the monks had three main robes made of thick cotton, supplemented by one or two angsas, shoulder cloths, and bathing cloths. The upper robe, or jiwon in Thai, and the lower robe, the sabong, if looked after and patched as they began to wear thin, could last for three or four years, and the double-layered outer robe, the sankati, much longer. Both larger robes could double as blankets at night. Bedding consisted of a rattan mat and a folding wooden pillow that the monks usually made themselves. Their other requisites consisted of a glot, a shoulder bag, a sitting cloth, water filter, needle and thread. They had no footwear. Candles and matches were hard to come by. Water for drinking and general use was drawn from a well. To make fire, as Lumpur described, you'd stuff kapok into a length of bamboo, leaving one end open with half a lemon skin as a lid. Then you'd strike the flint to get a spark and light the kapok in the tube. Walking around at night was dangerous. You'd come down from your kuti in the thick black darkness, raise your hands in anjali above your head and say sadhu with the power of the virtues of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, sabbe satta sukita hontu, sabbe satta avira hontu, sabbe satta ambiya pacha hontu. May all beings be happy 
and please leave me be. In the middle of the night, it was pitch black. You couldn't see a thing. It was easy to tread on something on your walking path without seeing it. In fact, I trod on snakes a number of times. There's a lot of those small, venomous pit vipers around, but they never bit me. Cloth was in very short supply. If a robe became ripped, its owner would be expected to patch and darn it until the cotton reached a terminal, tissue paper stage of decline, at which every slight strain would tear it. Only then would the monk be issued cloth from the monastery store to make a new one. Jantieng remembered. For the first three or four years we sewed by hand. Sometimes, after cutting the cloth for a robe, the whole sangha would sit down and help with the sewing. Then the robe would be dyed in jackfruit dye. By the time it was finally ready to be worn, a couple of months had passed. Making the full set of three robes was no easy thing. To get enough dye, you had to keep the wood chips boiling on the fire for hours and hours. That is, if you could get hold of any cloth to make the robes to dye in the first place. Bowl covers we had to crochet ourselves. It was difficult. If there had been as many monks as there are these days, I don't know how we would have managed. It was hard, but Long Po kept it all going. Arms food. Arms food was basic at best. Usually the monks would return from arms round with little more than sticky rice. Only rarely would there be a few bananas or dried fish to augment it. The Isan tradition, especially in the countryside, was to make arms round an almost ritual offering of rice, and then afterwards to take side dishes to the monastery. Known in Thai as gap khao, which means literally with rice, curries, fruit, sweets, edible leaves, etc., would be offered to the monks at mealtime. It was a custom that maintained a close daily relationship between the Sangha and the laity, but it was not a system that worked so well when the monks lived a long walk away from the village. Although few people could find time to go to Wat Ba Pong in the morning, they were slow to change their almsgiving habits. Plain rice was still the most common offering on alms round. Consequently, as they returned from the villagers, the novices, unhampered by the vineyard rules that prohibited the monks from destroying plant life, would stop to pick edible leaves from the trees by the path. These leaves, dipped in chilli sauce, would relieve the monotony of the heavy sticky rice. Four women, Long Po's mother, Mae Pim, and three other elderly villagers came to live in the monastery in that first year, and they tended a herb garden to supplement the alms food. Mechi Bunyu Pimwong, who arrived a few years after the Mechi community was established and went on to become the senior nun, remembers the hardships of those days. The food that was left over from the monks would be distributed amongst the Mechis. However much that might be, there was never any left over. If the monks got nothing, then we would go without as well we'd never try to procure food from elsewhere. Sometimes 
there would be an invitation for the monks to eat in a layperson's house, and there would only be two or three monks left to go on arms round. There were ten of us. After we'd shared out the rice, each of us would be left with a ball the size of a lemon, and so that's how much we'd eat. There was nothing to go with it, but we knew how to get by with plain rice. One time, I remember the monks came back from arms round with three bananas between them. Lung Po had one of the monks cut them into thin little slices and distribute them. That day, those three bananas fed the whole community. To hungry young monks, the daily meal consisting of a ball of sticky rice with a dab of chili sauce and not much else could still be delicious. Ajahn Jan was one whose appetite was never blunted by the frugality or monotony of the food. Until the end of his life, he cherished the memory of looking up from his bowl one day to see Luang Po's eyes upon him. Self-conscious, he stopped eating, painfully aware of how much he had been enjoying his meal. But his embarrassment subsided in an instant. He realized that the look on Luang Po's face was not disapproval. The heedless disciple was not about to be scolded for gluttony. What Ajahn Jan remembered seeing in Luang Po's expression that day, he said, was the warm, generous smile of a father watching a ravenous son tucking in after a hard day's work in the field. Luang Po said of those days, I never sat around, wasting my time, trying to think up ways to get hold of this or that kind of food. As far as I was concerned, plain rice was enough to survive on, and that went for the people that had the faith to come and practice here as well, Ajahn Jan, Ajahn Tieng, Ajahn Sinuan, and the rest. I'd make an announcement that today there would be a hot drink in the afternoon and everyone would come and drink it quietly. Not coffee or cocoa, or anything sweet but borapet. Nobody complained about its bitterness. There was nothing else, and so that's what we drank. The borapet that Long Po just referred to is an extremely bitter concoction prepared from a local vine. It was much used as a prophylactic and treatment for malaria. In later years, when lay support for the monastery had grown and food and drink were more plentiful, Long Po would often recall the early hardships. He would constantly remind the monks that they had no right to be well fed. Frugality was not an austerity imposed through circumstances, but a virtue to be cultivated. At least we had something to eat every day. And even if it was only plain rice, it was better than going without. Eating plain rice would make me think of dogs. In poor areas, the villagers feed their dogs with just a lump of sticky rice once a day. Nothing with it, just plain rice. And they don't die. They get by all right. And what's more, those dogs are really diligent and wakeful guards. They only have to hear the sound of leaves rustling, and they start barking. When their owner takes them hunting, they run really fast, because they're so lean. 
whereas the dogs who are well looked after by their masters get lazy. Anyone can walk right up to them, almost step on their head, and they still don't wake up. Medicines Throughout his life at Wat Bapong, Luang Po showed a determination to keep the world of institutions and bureaucracies at arm's length as best he could and to maintain the independence of his Sangha. During the first ten years or so of the monastery's existence, this policy included a rejection of allopathic medicine. His rationale was that monks had not had the advantage of Western medicine for 2,500 years, and that what had been good enough for the great monks of old was good enough for the Sangha of Wat Ba Pong. To his way of thinking at the time, access to medical care provided by the state was one of the conveniences of lay life renounced on entering the monastic order. Running to the local hospital with every small complaint would undermine the key virtue of patience that the training aimed to cultivate. Over the course of time, Luang Po's compassion led him to moderate this particular principle, and he eventually discarded it. But for the early pioneers of Wat Ba Pong, it was a proud tradition. This did not mean that physical ailments were left untreated altogether. In times of illness, the monks relied on herbal medicines made from local roots and leaves. Luang Po himself had gathered a wide knowledge of such traditional remedies during his years of wandering and new treatments for most of the common ailments that afflict monastics, digestive problems, joint pain and hemorrhoids. In the early years at Wat Ba Pong, malaria was the greatest scourge and virtually nobody was spared from it. For those afflicted, malarial fevers occur every one or two days, usually commencing in the afternoon. They are characterized by a coldness that no number of blankets can relieve and accompanied by blinding headaches and nausea. If the parasites find their way to the brain, death may result. Fortunately, nobody died at Wat Ba Pong, but many, including Luang Po, came perilously close. Mechi Bunyu remembers one occasion vividly. Luang Po was the first one to fall ill with malaria, and he got it very badly. He had the monks carry him down from his kuti and lay him on a bamboo bed in the shade. We had no modern medicines. Luang Po wouldn't let anyone have anything to do with the hospital. He wouldn't even let anybody mention its name. So we just did our best to treat him with the herbs we had. When he got really bad, his skin took on a kind of greenish, discoloured hue. We knew that meant he'd reached the last stage of the illness. One day, the fever was particularly severe. After laying there for a moment, he'd pull himself up into a sitting posture. Then, almost immediately, he would crumple back down again. This happened time and time again. Monks, novices, nuns and lay people, we all sat there, watching in silence. All our eyes were glued to him. He sat up again. He was swaying from side to side, trying to keep himself upright. 
he looked about and saw the dipper of medicine. He lifted it towards his mouth unsteadily, and before his attendant could help him, tipped it all over himself. He lay there drenched for a moment. Then you could see him make a great effort to gather himself. He put the dipper down, sat straight upright one more time, and stayed that way. There was silence. He had entered Samadhi. We were all frightened and amazed at what we saw. The next morning, he still hadn't recovered, but from then on, over a period of many days, he started to gradually improve. I don't know how it was he recovered, but as soon as he did, then everyone else started to get ill. It was like an epidemic. Monks, novices and nuns, everyone got it badly. Malaria rarely disappears completely. It often lies dormant in the liver. Luang Po was to suffer a number of relapses over the next three years. Ajahn Jan was one of the monks who tended to him during those times. At one time, he became seriously ill and we took turns nursing him. There would be two monks on each shift who would sit out on the veranda of his kuti and go inside every now and then to check how hot he was and see if he needed anything. But he would never let us massage him. He was concerned he'd become dependent on it. So we would sit out on the veranda and he would lie in the room shaking with fever. The attendants didn't talk. We would sit meditating with our backs to each other. Whenever there was something to be done, we went inside. His fever would come on in the afternoons. I remember one day some people had come to see him and were waiting beneath the Mutfai tree where we'd made a raised seat for him to sit on. Lung Po's fever was very high right then. His head ached and he felt nauseous. But when we told him he had guests, he just got up, put on his robe and went down to welcome them as if nothing was the matter. The fever gave him bad constipation. Finally, one day he called me over. Ajan Jan, come and have a look at this. I walked over to where he was standing. He pointed to a leaf that he'd put down on the ground by the side of him and said, That's why I've been so constipated. I looked down. In the middle of the leaf was something that looked like a small rock. It was a lump of his excrement. The medicine used for malaria was prepared from Boropet. The making of Boropet infusions became one of the daily duties of the nuns. Mechi Bunyu recounts the method. You'd finely chop the vine, a foot-long section for each person, pound it into a mush and then strain it through a thin cloth into a glass of water. That would give you a thick liquid. Then you'd have to hold your breath and knock it back. Luang Po's attitude to illness was uncompromising. The monks in those days knew how to endure. 
no matter how ill they were, they would refuse to go to the hospital. I myself had malaria for three years and never went to the hospital once. I just struggled with it here. How did I treat it? I boiled boropet and drank it with salt or some more. It worked really well. It just wasn't very pleasant, that's all. It was difficult on the body, but if you haven't reached your time, you won't die. There was no medicine in those days. If anyone got malaria, I'd encourage them, endure it. Meditation monks must be fearless. If any of you die, I'll see to the funeral myself. If I die first, then all of you can cremate me. Don't hold on, it's suffering. That's how we talk and admonish each other. There was no discouragement or despair. The monks were really brave, courageous, capable. I had no concerns that any of them would be cowed by such things. As Ajahn Jan remembered it, Lung Po's treatment of sick monks was gentler than his rhetoric. Lung Po was very tough. He used to say, if you're not dead, then make it good, and if it's no good, then let it die. Even so, whenever one of the monks or novices became ill, he would always give them special attention and be particularly kind to them. If someone was too ill to come out for the meal, he would put food aside for them himself. He would go and visit them regularly at their kuti and ask how they were. If their spittoon was full, he'd take it away and wash it out. After that, he would sweep around the kuti and then inspire them with Dhamma teachings. We didn't have much in the way of medicine, only local herbs, but he gave the best that he could, encouragement in the practice. 